This morning I get to preach one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I could be wrong, my history could be off, but I think this is the first text I ever preached at our church. Just like in the passages before it, the riches of God's grace are here on full display. Perhaps, in fact, the glories of grace shine brighter than nearly everywhere else. The gospel of grace is as clear as a full moon in a clear West Virginia sky this morning. Oh, there's solid foundational truth in our passage this morning. Truth on which we can build our whole lives. Truth that helps us think about ourselves, about who we were before we believed the gospel, who we are now, and the sort of life God calls us to live. We will see that God loved us while we were walking on the wrong path, a path headed for death and destruction. And in mercy, he pulls us off that path. He puts us on a better one, a path headed for glory. Glory being the triumph of grace. If you need to know who you are this morning, you're in the right place. If you need to be reminded of who you are this morning, You're in the right place. What is church if not the place we're reminded of that which we must never forget? If you need reminded that God has a plan for your life, that he is not finished with you, then you are in the right place. I just want to say three things about what the grace of God has done for us this morning. Three foundational truths for the Christian life, phrased in action words, where God is doing something active. God first loved dead rebels. God loved dead rebels. Second, God saved us and raised us with Christ. God loved dead rebels. First, second, God saved us and raised us with Christ. And third, God created us for good works. God created us for good works. Honestly, this is kind of a meat and potatoes sermon, but hopefully in the best way possible. In fact, it's the title track to the mixtape that is this sermon series. The title of this sermon, it shares the title of the series, Riches of Grace. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And you were dead, the apostle begins. This is hard truth in this passage. 
The apostle does not present us with a flattering picture of humanity. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Imagine zombies. You were the walking dead. Your sin caused you to be in a state that is described as spiritual death. But you were not alone in the spiritual death wrought by your trespasses and sins. No, you're following the course of the world, the apostle says. Is the course of the world, the way of the world that you are walking, is it a morally neutral way? Neither good nor bad. Neither moral nor immoral. Just what everyone else does. Is just being like everyone else, just doing what everyone else does, following the course of the world, is that morally neutral? It's the standard way of being in the world, a good way of being in the world. Is vox populi, vox dei, is, you know, is the voice of the people, in fact, the voice of God? Is the majority right? Is the way of the world the way of salvation and deliverance? Paul says, no. The course that you walk, the course of this world is set by someone it's like if you set the Charleston distance race. Someone sets the course. Set up a 5K. Someone sets the course. Turn this way. Go this way. Go that way. Someone's making a decision that others will follow. Paul says the course that the world is walking is not a morally neutral one. That someone has set that course. Someone has charted that course. The course that you walk the course that everyone is walking is set by whom? Paul says, we must reckon with the text, it's set by the prince of the power of the air. Who in the world is the prince of the power of the air? He goes on to explain the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So who are the sons of disobedience? mindlessly following the spirit of disobedience, following with the crowd like a bunch of zombies, just walking, not knowing which way they're ultimately going. Who are these sons of disobedience mindlessly following everyone else? The scriptures say, all of us. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does it look like to be among the sons of disobedience, the ones who walk the path marked by Satan himself? Well, it looks like this. It looks like living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, living carnally, as Paul will say elsewhere. It's this metaphor of living in the flesh instead of walking in the spirit. And why are we doing these things? Why do we live this way? Because it's who we are. Paul says this is our nature. We are by nature children of wrath. Maybe this is the hardest truth with which we must reckon this morning. It's a truth at which we must not stop, but it's a truth we must consider. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sin corrupts us at our very core. 
Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees understand this. That it's not what goes into your body that defiles you, but what comes out because you're already defiled. The defiling happens in here. Sin is not just about our actions. It's about our nature. About who we are. Why does it matter to understand this? Is this just, is this just theology that doesn't help anybody? That just is just something I need to check a box to say I believe, but it doesn't actually matter. Why does it matter to understand this? Let me count the ways. On a basic level, it helps us make sense of pain and suffering in the world. The world is full of people who are spiritually dead with no desire for righteousness and justice. Where is your God, they ask. He is in heaven, storing up anger at the wrath of us who live like ourselves are all that matter. It helps us understand why people are only out for themselves, why people exploit and abuse and hurt others. It helps us understand the brokenness of the world. But I think even more than helping us think rightly about the world, it helps us think rightly about the gospel. Because the gospel is not Jesus dying in the place of good people. It's not even Jesus dying in the place of just bad people. It's Jesus dying in the place of spiritually dead people in rebellion to God who are just following their own sinful desires. Why do we need to know this? Why does this help us understand the gospel? Because it magnifies the greatness of God's love. It magnifies the greatness of God's love. It magnifies the greatness of God's power. It teaches us that we had no part in our salvation. What does a dead body do to help you prepare for its funeral? Nothing. It just lays there. An outside agent has to do something to it. That is like our spiritual condition. We couldn't raise ourselves up. We couldn't put makeup on ourselves from when the caskets up. We couldn't do any of that. We were helpless. Our salvation requires the work of someone intervening with no help from us. It reminds us that God loved us when we were objectively not lovely to him. That God saved us when we most needed saving. And that God breathed life into our hopeless and dead hearts. Only if we know ourselves to have been dead do we realize the miracle of our being alive. The good news that Jesus Christ has given us life is just this. God loved dead rebels who were by nature children of wrath carrying out the desires of the body and the mind following the course of this world the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience and God loved us God who loved us saved us and raised us look with me in verse 4 but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Would make a good title to a sermon series, Riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, why? So no one may boast. 
Hear how the apostle describes what God has done for us of this short-term dead rebels. So dead, spiritually dead rebels, walking in rebellion to the will of God, living our own way. This is what God has done for us dead rebels. He first made us alive together with Christ. He has breathed life into our dead hearts. His word that calls out your name breathes life into your soul. The creating power of God does a new thing in your heart. It's like Genesis 1 in your heart when you believe the gospel. The same power of God that breathes and creates galaxies breathes and gives you life. I say something like this almost every three to four months. You can set your clocks to it. Every Christian is a miracle. Every Christian is a story of life coming from death. Every testimony exalts the grace, love, and power of our God. There are no boring testimonies. First, Paul is explaining what God has done for us by using this language of life coming from death, that you were dead and now you are alive. The second language he uses is he saved us by grace through faith. He takes us off the path that we're walking. He rescues us from the end that awaits us. How? How does he do it? By, by giving us instructions to follow. By saying, pray five times a day, memorize these words, give these tithes, be nice to others, and cross your fingers. No, by giving us his righteousness. And how do we receive that righteousness? How do we take it? How does God hold it forth? And how do we say that is what I want, that for me? What's that process like? We receive grace through faith. Grace is like the ocean. Faith is like the channel by which we reach it. Faith is the means by which we receive grace. We are saved by grace through faith to exalt the giver, not the recipient. But check this out. We don't exalt ourselves, but in glory... In glory, Christ exalts us. There's something that almost makes us uncomfortable about this idea. Because we know ourselves to be, have been dead rebels. We know ourselves to be unworthy of glory. But grace is just the seed that flowers into glory. That he who humbles himself before God will be exalted on the last day. There is something that awaits us which is magnificent and marvelous. And so what else does Paul say? So Paul says that God has... Uh, given us life, that he has saved us, and he explains that process by saying he's done it by grace, and you get in on that grace through faith. But Paul also says he has raised us up with him, speaking in the past tense. He has raised us up with him. So that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. What in the world does that mean? I think in the, in the best way possible, I have no idea. But it's wonderful, right? I, uh, in the coming ages, he has raised us up with Christ, seated us with him, so that we might know the incredible riches of God's kindness forever. So that we might be showered on the riches of his grace for the rest of eternity. It's amazing. I can hardly even imagine what it means. I don't think we have the words and categories to explain what it means, that we will in some way experience the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us forever. And why? Why did he give us life? Why did he save us? Why did he raise us up with Christ? The answer that the apostle gives is just this, because he is rich in mercy because of his great love. 
because he's rich in mercy. Well, why is he rich in mercy? Does he want something from me? No, he's rich in mercy because he's, because of his great love. That's why. Think about the best gift you've ever given someone. Maybe you spent a ton of money. Maybe you did a lot of background research and legwork to make the gift happen. Why did you do all that? Because you love that person. You want them to know you love them. And so you thought, what can I do that stretches my capacity? Whether it's financially or whether it's through effort and thinking about something and connecting. Why did you do that? Because you're motivated by, by love. You want them to know you love them. The gift is just kind of a token almost of something better than the gift. Of the love that you have for them. Now imagine a perfect God being motivated by perfect love to give us a perfect gift. And this is the beauty of the gospel, my friends. God saw you in spiritual death and rebellion. A child of wrath like the rest of mankind. And his response was mercy. Why mercy? Because love. He loved you. And he spared not his own son for you. A perfect God of perfect love gave you the perfect gift. Life and righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He plucked you off that path you were headed on and he set you on a better one. Look with me in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God created us. God created you for good works. So God created you for good works, and let's also move those words around and have some fun. God created you for good works, and he created good works for you. God created you for good works, and he created good works for you. Let's think about the first half of that, that God created you for good works. God created you uniquely, and then he carved out a unique path for you, this unique person, to walk. Now, you know I am a bit sentimental. I do cry a little bit. Not a lot, but more by the day. I do like to use flowery language when possible. I do think beauty is not necessarily a necessity. It's one of the greatest proofs we have for God's existence. I think beautiful things are important. I like to use flowery language. But you also know I am hesitant to sound too much like a Hallmark card. I am hesitant to sound too much like a motivational speaker. I am hesitant to sound too much like an inspirational poster. So at the risk of sounding like any of those things, I gotta tell you the truth. Only one person on this planet can be who God created you to be. Only one person on this planet can be who God created you to be. There are times in our life where we need to be reminded there are billions of people around the world Billions. And I'm really not that special. Whatever I can do, there's someone in the world who can do it better than me. There just is. Whatever I think I, you know, bring to the table, I, someone out there can probably bring something like that better than anyone. There are times we need to be humbled and reminded that we are just one in a big crowd 
frankly, especially in our American culture and the Western culture, sort of a culture that's all about individualism and sort of you can be whoever you want to be. We actually need to be reminded of some things that some brothers in our East can teach us that, that we're, we're part of a whole, you know. We're not that special. There are times we need to be reminded of that. But, but there are times where we need to be reminded that while there are all these billions of people in the world, each one of them is equidistant from the heart of God. And each one of them is unique, not like the other in some way. That God creates us and knows us intimately. There's only one person who can be you and there's only one path that you can walk and you are that you and that path is your path. The text says that we are his workmanship. That means that God is our designer. God is our creator. He is the one who made us the way that we are. He gave you the gifts that you have. In as much as they're not tainted by sin, like he even gave you the desires and longings that you have. Maybe this is helpful. God has created you in Adam and redeemed that creation in the second Adam. God has created you in Adam as a, a human, a human being. And then he redeems that creation through the work of a second Adam, Jesus the Christ. You're, you're a human by virtue of your physical birth, and you learn what it means to truly be human by virtue of your spiritual birth. In other words, you step into the fullness of who you were born to be when you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You step into the fullness of who you were created to be when you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The implications of that for the Christian are 10,000. To be true to ourself then, to be true to yourself in a Christian sense, is to be true to Christ. Because he is the prototype. He is the perfect human. He is the one we all desire to be like. He is the one who shows us the way of God. He embodies it. He lives it. He is the prototype. What does the perfect human look like? This. And freedom is found in conformity to the right prototype. It is not free to be bound by my own desires. It is not free to be bound by my own emotions. It is free to be bound in right constraints. You are not created to be like what our culture says you should be like. You were created to be like Jesus. And through the power of the Spirit and the work of God in your life, you are becoming who you were created to be. Paul says, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We are true to ourselves then when we are true to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not what you believe yourself to be. You do not dictate who you are. Your physical traits, your maleness, your femaleness, your internal composition, your holy longings and desires and things you want, these things are given to you. 
by one who has created you. They were placed there by someone who is greater and smarter and wiser and more loving and more merciful and more just than ourselves. The one who has given us this reality, he is our master craftsman. We are his workmanship. We are not our workmanship. The Lord Jesus Christ has created you for good works and he created good works for you. You were not saved and raised and given life to just float to heaven, to be like the rats on the sinking ship. You were not created just to be a critic, to criticize other people and ministries and ideas. You were not raised to life to sink into despair. You have a path that you get to walk. You have a path that you need to walk. I thought about calling the sermon, you know, like a tale of two paths or a tale of two trails or something like that. Because I think in subtle ways, this little part of Ephesians is framed by sort of two paths. Two journeys, two ways of being in the world. The first way of being in the world is the wide path to destruction. Jesus actually uses this language. Satan charts the course. It's the easy way to go because it's the way that most people are going. Like whenever I go to a, you know, a big event, like a, a football game or a, you know, a concert or something. Who am I kidding? I don't go to concerts. <laughs> I go to football games and basketball games. So if I go to a football game, you know, like me and dad and my Uncle Bob and Papa and cousin, we go watch West Virginia beat Virginia Tech in a, what was really one of the highlights of, of our year. Um, and so we, we go and, you know, we, we, never, we don't go to Blacksburg often. I mean, why would you go down there? There's seriously no reason. And so we're, we're, we, we don't know where to park and we find a place to park and we park. And then, you know, when you park and you don't really know where you are, it's like, where, where do we go? What's the thing that you do? You look around and see the people in those just atrocious orange and maroon collars and they're just walking somewhere, okay? They, a path headed to destruction. I mean, they're gonna, but they're walking somewhere and so they're going and you say, well, they, they've been here. They know this area, and so it looks like there might be season ticket holders. I, I don't know. And so I'll just follow them because that's the way they're going. And so I'm not mindlessly, like, mindfully like, trying to find the stadium. They're, all these people are going to the stadium. I don't know if the stadium is that way. I've never been here. I don't know where we're going. But I assume that there's no way all of these people are all wrong. So I'll just, I'll just, I'll just follow them. I trust them. I believe them. Now imagine that they're all wrong. They're all going the wrong way. A bad actor is leading the, a pit fans up there leading the march. But the passage ends with another path. A path that is not as wide. A path that is actually tailored specifically to you. A path that the apostle says, God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. So it's not like a wide, easy highway, but, but it's actually much more special because it's, it's, a, it's an awareness that I'm not just going the way everyone goes, but I'm going in a path that, that someone else has set for me. In fact, both paths have been set for us by someone else. We just think we set the first one. But God puts us on a different path. He created you. Yeah, yeah, he did. But he also created the path before you. 
Like he gave you the gifts and then he arranges the opportunities for their deployment. Some of you right now sense you have a spiritual gift that you're not using. You have longings that aren't met, desires that aren't being fulfilled, opportunities that aren't there. Here is my counsel for you. Keep walking. Because the same God who created you with that is the same God who orders your steps towards his desired ends. The God who gives you holy desires orders your steps in pursuit of them. The God who gives you God-sized dreams gives you God-sized power to accomplish them. Brothers and sisters and worship team, I'm, I'm finished a little early. Fifth Sunday, I thought our kids might like a shorter sermon. God has created a path for you, for your life, that glorifies him, serves the church, and advances his kingdom. The future, that future, is out there for you. That future begins today. I said that this sermon was in some ways a meat and potato sermon, hopefully relatively engaging, but nonetheless, it's just full of simple truths. Truths that you need to be reminded of, that, that before I met Jesus, it wasn't like I was just this lovely, wonderful, moral person doing good. Like It was more complex than that. That I was spiritually dead. And that spiritual death means not that everything I do is wrong necessarily, but that everything I do has been tainted by sin. That, you know, you hear theologians talk about like total depravity. I, I, I like the language more so even of radical corruption. That, that it's not that everything every person who's not a Christian does is evil and terrible. It's that everything a person who's not a Christian does is tainted in some way by sin. That there's, there's pride and envy and all these things are just mixed up in our desires. And that, that we can't escape that prison. And the inescapability of sin's touch means that we're just dead. We can't do anything about it. We can't untangle that web of desire in our heart. We can't parse through our motives and understand what's wrong. Like we mess up. We sin. We do what's wrong. We look out for ourselves. And we do that because it's who we are. Our problems are deep inside of us. The Bible gets at that idea by saying you're by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. Unmerited favor, you have been saved. And you achieve that, you receive that, not by a job to get a wage, but by faith to believe that it's given to you. God loved you when you didn't love yourself, when you gave him no reason to love you, when you were in rebellion to him and when you were spiritually dead because that's just how great his love is. God saved you. He raised you with Christ and he's given you life. And the life that he gives is abundant. It's wonderful. It's glorious. It's hard. It's challenging. It stretches us. It calls us to repent, to walk not 
our own way, but to walk his way. To pick up not our crown, but our cross. To not satisfy all the things I want and need and think I gotta have, but to trust in Christ. To live not by hoarding, but by giving. To live a life that's marked by love and holiness. Because God's got a, a path for your life with good works that you've only begun to do. There's a chapter and another chapter and another chapter and the book's already written. You just play it out in this theater of God's glory. You play a role in the greatest story ever told. The story of the Lord Jesus Christ making all things new. Because God loves us. He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us. These are the riches of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray this morning that you will take the truth of the gospel and you will send that truth from our heads to our hearts that we would not only believe rightly, but that we would think rightly and live rightly and love rightly, that you would remind us who we were, you would remind us who we are, and you would remind us who we are becoming. You would remind us that we are not our own, but belong to you in heart, body, and soul. That we have been purchased at great price. Remind us that, yes, we were created in Adam and recreated in Christ, and our physical birth makes us human. Our spiritual birth helps us understand what it means to be human that we can be who you've called us to be. We can walk the path you've called us to walk. In fact, walk it we must. For your workmanship we are. Give us faith to believe this. Help us not fall into sentimentality and just think, oh, wow, I'm the greatest ever. But no, you are, you, God, you are the greatest ever. You love us, you saw us, you ran to us while we were a long way off. You gave your own life for us that we might know you and make you known. And so I pray that this week and in the weeks to follow that the riches of your grace would just bring us to our knees in gratitude and worship. And that all that we do in 2023 will be in response to your extravagant love, your perfect love, your riches of grace, the mercy that you've got for us because of your perfect love. Lord, right now, teach someone who's in this theater or perhaps watching on YouTube, teach them, remind, teach them who they are for the, for the first time. And for, for others, Lord, remind us who we are for the hundredth time. And lift our eyes to the path you have for us. Lift our eyes to you. For we just take the next step 
you don't show us the whole way. Because the way is not the point. You are. 